What a, what a great message, what a great truth that we heard, and I'm sure many of you were singing that song as you heard the choir doing it, um, because God is all that we need, right? Everything that we need, He is who we need. Please turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 14, if you will, 2 Samuel 14. In a zero-sum game, if one side gains, the other side loses. So we're talking about zero-sum games. If one side advances, the other side is going backwards. If one side wins, the other side loses. I was recently watching these nature shows and uh, this particular one was on various predators. So we'll talk about lions. Now lions, as you know, live in prides. And these prides are made up mostly of lionesses. So several lionesses and their cubs. Now the male lions, they come and go. They're not loyal to any specific tribe or, or pride. They'll come, they'll be there for a while, then they may go find another pride to be part of at that point. But each pride stakes out a territory. And that's their territory. So this territory here, however many miles wide it is, how big it is, that belongs to that pride. And that pride will defend that territory against any other predator that may come in, right? So it may be cheetahs are coming in and looking. Well, those lions, they're going to protect their territory. Maybe hyenas or wild dogs or whatever it is, but that pride is going to protect their territory. Now, when there's a challenger that comes, there's going to be a fight. And whoever wins that fight, whatever group of animals wins that fight, they are going to gain or take over that territory, right? It's a zero-sum game. If one side wins, the other side is going to lose. They're going to move out. They're going to be moved out. Instinctively, they will not share their territory with others, now, last week, we saw the conflict between Absalom and his brother, half-brother Amnon, reach its boiling point. Absalom kills, after a few years, sets up this situation where Am Amnon is there, and then he has his people kill his half-brother because of what he did to Tamar, who is Absalom's full sister. Well, as soon as he does that, he flees to a place called Gesher, and he lives there in exile for three years. In chapters 14 and 15, we're going to see the rise of Absalom. And as we see the rise of Absalom, what we're going to see is the decline of David. It's a zero-sum game. Absalom is rising. David is going to be declining. As Absalom's influence increases, David's influence and power will decrease, at least on the surface that is. So as we look to the text this morning, we're going to cover two chapters. We're going to see four principles that I believe we need to learn from this text. So if you will, please stand. We're just going to read the first three verses of chapter 14. Second Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 3. The Word of God. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. 
Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue on this journey through First and Second Samuel, and as we are approaching the end, today we're praying that you would help us to see truth from your word. We pray that as we see this counterfeit king rising up, that we would not lose heart, but that we would continue to trust you in all things. And today, Lord, we're praying that we would see the true king, that we would see Jesus, and that we would find our hope in his care in our lives. And many in the same way that we're going to see played out in the next weeks, how we see your care for David, the anointed. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, you'll recall that Joab was the commander of David's army. He was a close confidant of David. Now, we've seen Joab. We've seen his personality. We've seen how he has gotten out in front of David on his, on his own many times, right? He's acted according to his own volition on many occasions, even doing things that David would prefer for him not to be doing. And here in verse one, we see it starting again. So we ought to have these red flags going in our heads right now. We read that Joab, he knew the king's heart went out to Absalom. Now, we just have to take a moment and say this is a, mis, uh, this is a difficult, misleading phrase here. As commentator Joyce Baldwin notes, the Hebrew term went out is most often used in a hostile regard. So it's not necessarily that the king's heart went out to his son Absalom in this sympathetic, oh, compassionate Absalom kind of way. It's more of his, his, his heart was against his son. The most natural reading of the text reads, King David's heart was against Absalom. Now think about it. Joab is going to recruit this woman from Tekoa, this wise woman from Tekoa. And he's going to put words in her mouth, right? He's going to set up this whole scenario we're going to see uh, meant to manipulate David. And we're going to see that it's meant to manipulate David in order to bring Absalom, who is in Geshur, had been there for a period of time, back to Jerusalem. Friends, if David's heart was sympathetic and was wanting Absalom back already, Joab would not have had to go through this whole uh, deceptive thing in order to get David to agree to bring Absalom back. Now, there's something else going on here. So Joab is going to orchestrate all of this movement in order to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the question is, why? Why was it important for Joab to bring Absalom, the king's estranged son who's living in exile, back to the city of David? Well, at one level, we can say this is according to God's providence. So this is according to God's will. It's, good. it's part of the judgment on David for his sin. But if we were to speculate further, some would believe that this visit was, or this, the purpose of this um, plan that Joab devised was to 
bring Absalom, the oldest living son, back to Jerusalem in order to reconcile Israel. Like the people knew that there was this against Absalom and David. Something was going on and it would be best for the kingdom, some would speculate, that uh, if they reconciled. I mean, this may have been late in David's life. Some would even say this is the last year of David's life. And if that was the case, then Absalom was the oldest living son and he had the rightful heir and this is what should happen. Others believe that David had already named Solomon as his successor and that Joab was against Solomon. So Joab here was trying to get Absalom back into the line of being the next king. Well, we don't know for certain. I personally believe that Joab's intentions were good here. He wanted to make sure that things went as smoothly as they possibly could have for King David and for the kingdom, especially, especially in light of all that had happened, all that had been going on over the last several years of David's reign. But the first principle that I want us to see from this text is this. Good intentions are no substitute for prayer. Good intentions are no substitute for prayer. We see this in these first 17 verses of chapter 14. Now, what we've seen with Joab is that he is very confident in himself, right? He is certain of his actions. He is certain of his opinions. Against David's wishes, actually, we saw this before, Joab chases after Abner, who was uh, commander of Ishbosheth's army, right? And slays him even after David had given him the promise of peace. Now here, Joab is certain of his action. He's certain that this is the right thing to do to bring back Absalom. So he orchestrates this, this really deceptive plan in order to manipulate the king into inviting Absalom back. But what we're gonna see is all of this was a huge mistake. It was a huge mistake. Now. In verses 4 through 17, the woman from Tekoa goes to David and pleads with the king to save her. So David says, well, sure, what, what's going on? What do you need? And she goes on to tell David of this whole story about how she had two sons. And they were fighting in a field, and one of the sons killed the other son, right? It was a crime of passion. And since that day, the one son was living in exile, living in a different area, because all the people who lived in that same village wanted to kill him. They wanted to exact justice on this son for killing the other son. However, she, she would say in the story, she says, but, but really they just want my inheritance. They just want the land. They want to kill my other son, my only other living relative, so that they can steal away the inheritance that we would have, what my husband, remember she was a widow here, what my husband had was in his name. They just want that stuff. So what does the mother want? The mother wants the banished son to return under the promise of safety. Now, you'll remember the last time that someone came to David with a story in order to try to move in David's life, right? That was when God went to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan then went to confront David with the story of the little ewe lamb and how the rich man stole from the, the poor man and, and took his lamb to feed some traveler who was coming through. Here, it's not God, but it's Joab who puts the words into the mouth of this messenger who will go to King David. Now listen, if you're King David, if I'm King David, I think I'm putting two and two together. 
I mean, the stories are so similar, right? Two sons, and they're fighting, and one kills one, and one is banished, but somehow David is so dense that he does not see it. He will not put it together. Not every detail is the same, but there's enough details the same where David probably should have understood what was going on. Well, if we read into the story, at first David is hesitant to give judgment here. I mean, one of, the, one of the responsibilities of a king, as we've talked about before, was that people would come and, and the king would adjudicate the case. He would give his, his answer to those who were seeking justice from the king. But eventually, the king tells the woman that the son will come back and the son will have the promise of safety. And it's at this point then, this wise woman from Tekoa, as the text calls her, plays her cards. Well, really, they're Joab's cards. But she boldly suggests that the king should bring Absalom back from exile and that she should do it for the good of the people, that she should do it for the good of Israel. She even adds a theological hook to her answer. Let's look at verse 14, chapter 14, verse 14. The woman says to the king, David, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. All right, we're gonna come back to this a little bit later. In verses 18 through 20, David point blank asks this woman, hey, did Joab put you up to this? I smell Joab here. Did he put you up to this? And she just says yes. Joab did. Now, that David suspected that Joab was behind this probably tells us that over the course of these past several years, while Absalom was in Geshur, that they had had this conversation. That Joab was angling or had been angling for some time that the king would bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. Well, in verse 21, David instructs Joab to go and get Absalom and bring him back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, right? So Joab's scheme works, but it backfires. It all backfires, and we'll see that over the course of the next few weeks. Good intentions or not, what stands out about Joab's scheme is that it is all his doing. It's his master plan. We read nothing about Joab seeking the Lord. We read nothing about Joab pleading with God for wisdom to know if it's right for Absalom to be brought back into Jerusalem. This is presented to us as Joab's idea. Now, again, God obviously allows Joab's plan to succeed as an aspect of God's judgment on David and the consequences from his sin. But what we need to learn from this, friends, is that we are not to act according to our own wisdom, no matter how good our intentions are. We are to regularly and consistently seek God's wisdom. We are regularly to seek his plan and to follow his plan. In fact, God calls us to humbly seek him, to pursue him. I, I want you to listen to, the, to what James writes, James chapter 4. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and we'll make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? 
For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What James is saying, that it's, it's wrong to live with this idea that we are the masters of our own universe. That we are able to call our own shots. What James is telling us and what Joab needed to learn here and what we need to do in our own lives is acknowledge that there is one who is above us. That who is greater than us. That whose plan, whose desire is what we ought to seek, right? What does the Lord's prayer say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how are we to know what his will is if we're not seeking his will? Now, Joab here may have had good intentions, but he did not seek the Lord's will. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 make it very clear that we are to seek the Lord and not rely on our own understanding, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So how do we do this? How do we do this? How do we not lean on our own understanding if we are not seeking the Lord in prayer? If we're not, if we're not humbling ourselves and crying out to him for wisdom? If we're not pursuing wisdom in the word of God? If we're not committed to his will and not our own wills? Well, a second principle I think we see in this text is that we are to be decisive in what we allow or disallow in our lives. We're to be decisive in what you allow or disallow in your life. Let's look at verses 21 through 24, chapter 14. Then the king said to Joab, behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king. And that the king has granted the request of a servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. I want you to think about this. David was manipulated. David gives in and he quote, invites Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, but to stay away from him. Don't come near me. It had been three years since Absalom escaped to Geshur after he murdered Amnon. Verse 28 tells us that two more years had passed since Absalom was brought back to Jerusalem. So friends, he had not seen the king in quite some time. Five years he had not seen the king. And it makes us wonder if this was David's plan to say, you come back, but don't come by me, don't come in my presence. Why did David allow Absalom to come back in the first place? Why would that happen? Well, in verses 28 through 33, we see that Absalom gets just fed up with this. He's tired of living there, but 
tired of being an outcast. He's tired of not being able to see the king. Of course, we know that in Absalom's own mind, he's already scheming, he's already planning. Remember, it had been two years that had passed since Amnon did violence to his half-sister until Absalom took out his revenge on Amnon. So he was a schemer. And we know that he was scheming this whole time. So Absalom tries to get Joab, right? He goes back to Joab and he says, hey, Joab, uh, come on, Joab, I need to talk to you. Come, come, Joab. Does this multiple times, but Joab will not go and see Absalom. So Absalom says, well, I know what I'm going to do. My, I live right here. My field's here. And right next to my field is Joab's field. I'm going to go have my servant set Joab's field on fire. That will get his attention. And it did get his attention. As soon as his field was on fire, Joab came running. And Absalom says, why didn't you come? And he pleads his case. Why am I here, but I can't go into the king's presence? Well, again, Joab talks to the king. The king says, okay, let's look at verse 33. Chapter 14, verse 33. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Now look, that's, that's just the facts. Pretty cold reception. Pretty awkward reception. Baldwin notes that there is no attempt to record an attempt here to bridge the gulf that had developed between them. Doesn't seem like there's any effort put into reconciliation, no discussion of what had happened. Just here he is, he bows down, he kisses his son, and that's what we have. Friends, David is guilty of being indecisive. Truthfully, David should have executed justice on Absalom, but he didn't. Instead, he just left things in limbo. He allows Absalom to return to Jerusalem, yet makes no effort at reconciliation and keeps his son at a distance. Which is it, David? Is it reconciliation? Is it forgiveness? Is it let's move forward? Or will it be justice? Or will it be you're going to be at, my, at an arm's length? You know, from a human and relational standpoint, friends, how might have things been different if David would have brought Absalom back into his life and cared for him? Would things have been different? Would the relationship have gone differently, been different? Friends, we are called to be decisive in what we allow into our lives or what we disallow into our lives. Let's not make the mistake that David did with his indecisiveness. Relationally speaking, who is it that you are connecting with? Who is it that you are connecting with? Who do you keep at a distance? Or who are you allowing into your life that doesn't need to be in your life? Are your closest friends people that will encourage you in Christ? Are they people that will love you in Christ? Are they people who will point you to Christ? Or are your closest friends and the people that you spend most of your time with people who don't care about Christ and are not encouraging you in the faith? Who do you need to be decisive and allow into your life to a greater level? Or who do you need to be decisive and not allow into your life because of the negative influence? Some of us in here are spending way too much time with people who are not encouraging us in Christ. In fact, they are pushing you away from Christ. And I'm not necessarily talking about people who are engaged in all sorts of sinful actions or practices. 
Hear me say this. Lukewarm people can lead you astray just the same. Lukewarm people who are engaging in whatever else, maybe it's not sinful, but really not encouraging you in Christ, can lead you astray just the same. What about this? Let's, t- let's move away from relationships in our lives. Let's just talk about our habits or our practices or the things that we engage in. When it comes to other things like entertainment or hobbies, what are we allowing into our lives that will weaken our resolve towards holiness? What are we allowing into our lives or even inviting into our lives? Are we making room for materialism? Are we making room for pornography? Or are we just wasting time with things that have no eternal value at all? And listen, this happens all the time. People get consumed with sports or with hobbies or with physical fitness or with their career or with making money at the expense of pursuing godliness. Again, I'm not saying these things are wrong. I'm not saying sports or hobbies or physical fitness or your career is wrong. Don't hear that. But if it has become the priority of your life and it's distracting you from pursuing godliness, and friends, you have an issue. You have a problem. No matter what the world has to say, we need to be decisive in what we allow into our lives and what we disallow into our lives and the place it has in our lives. That's why Paul in his letters regularly calls the church to put off certain things and to put on certain things, right? What are we allowing in our lives? We're to put off the old self and we're to put on the new self. We're to put off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. David made a mistake by accommodating Absalom, his son, especially in light of what we're going to learn about Absalom, which leads us to the next principle. When people show you who they are, believe them. When people show you who they are, believe them. We've learned a lot about Absalom already, haven't we? He was driven by hatred. He was consumed by a desire for revenge. He was an ambitious schemer. He he was a manipulator and he would stop at nothing to get his way. In chapter 14, verse 25 through 27, we have this narrative account about how handsome Absalom was. How he was, you know, he had no external defects and he had this great set of hair, right? I mean, if Absalom was alive today, he'd be featured in those head and shoulders commercials, no question, right? Patrick Mahomes, Troy Polamalu, they would have nothing on Absalom. Of course, this makes us think about the other king, right? King Saul, who the author of the text tells us was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was this great looking guy and he, quote, looked the part of the one who would be king. He was the people's choice because he looked the part. Everything external, what we read about Absalom has nothing to do with internal character. It's just about how he looked. As chapter 15 starts out, we read more about the scheming on Absalom's part. Let's look at chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. 
And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is a such and such for such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom is a seasoned politician. That's the picture we see. He was a seasoned politician. And he is starting his campaign to steal the throne. There he is now, invited back to Jerusalem, meets with the king, and what does he do? He gets himself a chariot. Now, the topography of Jerusalem meant that he didn't need a chariot. There was nowhere to run it. And he got 50 people to go before him to announce his coming. He was trying to do these kingly things. He was playing the part. He begins to sow seeds of doubt and distrust in King David as he ingratiates himself to the people, to those who would come to the gate and seek justice. By the way, Absalom is being dishonest here. I mean, when the woman of Tekoa comes to David, even though it's a completely made up story, David was there to hear her case. So it wasn't like he wasn't doing these things. It's just that Absalom was intercepting people and then making his will be known in those moments. By the way, we have no idea that Absalom was going to pursue justice. He just told people he would. Oh yeah, every, everyone, everyone's going to get free food and everyone's going to get this and that. He's the politician here. Everyone's going to get what they want. That's what he's doing here. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He's scheming to win the favor of the people by damaging David's reputation and fostering discontent. A zero-sum game. That's what he's doing. He's trying to build himself up, and in his building himself up, he's putting David down. Chuck Swindoll writes, Absalom's plan worked perfectly. Little by little, he undermined David's reputation, and he built his own. Now, interestingly, I read in verse 6, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. But that idiom, stole the hearts, is not about affection. It's about deceit. Absalom deceived the people. He duped the people of Israel into aligning themselves with him. In verse 7, we read at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, his dad, hey, let, let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed while I was living uh, elsewhere. I have to go to, to Hebron. That's where David was first pronounced king, king of Judah. I got to go pay my vow to the Lord there in, in Hebron. The text actually states 40 years. Let's just, let's just look at that verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. Right? So he's, 
in exile and he tells David that he made this vow to the Lord and he's got to go pay his vow to the Lord. Now, look, that's four years later. So there's a lot of time that has been passing since, since Abnon took advantage of Tamar, since Absalom killed Abnon, since Absalom fled to Geshur, since Absalom came back, since Absalom met the king, and now this. I mean, years have passed. All right, just let me go, let me go. And, and by the way, he's gonna invite King David. King David, you come with me. Dad, come with me. We're gonna do all this stuff. I'm gonna pay my vow. Well, this idea of four years, some scholars actually would say it's actually 40 years. 40 years is the correct interpretation. That's the original Hebrew, not four years. Now, now some scholars believe that the 40 years here is original and that the 40 years refers to Absalom's age, which is also the beginning of David's kingdom because Absalom was born right at the beginning of David's reign. If this is the case, then this was the last year of David's reign. This is not, we don't know this for sure, but there is a sense here where uh, the word for is believed because it makes more sense with everything else going on. I'm not sure what the right answer is. I don't know if this was four years or if this is really a reference to the last year of David's reign. But this could have been 10 years after all of this started going on. In verse 9, King David gives Absalom permission to go to Hebron, where David began his reign, and then everything is set in motion. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence, and they knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering their sacrifices, he sent for Ahihopal, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Absalom is seizing what doesn't belong to him. And he seems to have a lot of momentum. And none of this should surprise us because the indicators have been clear. Church, in the world in which we live, it's easy to be deceived by the latest philosophies. It's easy to be deceived by what the culture is selling, what the loudest voices are saying. But we're called to use discernment. In 1 John, we're called to test the spirits. We're called to examine the actions of others because their actions reveal a lot about that person. Why is it that so many Christians buy into the lies of people who are opposed to righteousness, who care nothing about truth and love? It's because we are undiscerning people. And we are allowing ourselves to be deceived, led astray by a desire to be liked, accepted, or perhaps even for personal gain. Jesus calls us to be fruit inspectors, Matthew chapter seven, right? He says, look, you're gonna know them by their deeds. When people show you who they are, believe them and make the necessary changes. And that means we have to be discerning. Well, finally, entrust yourself to God's providential care. And trust yourself to God's providential care. In verses 13 through 29, 
Uh, we read about how David and his people leave Jerusalem in light of Absalom's actions. So there they go. They blow the trumpets. Everyone's saying, oh, Absalom is king in, he- in Hebron. And, and everyone's on the bandwagon, right? The conspiracy was growing and the people were there. It's a zero-sum game, right? Absalom's growing in, in, in influence. David's decreasing in influence, Now, it may have been that David thought that the 200 people who went with Absalom, who the text tells us didn't know what was going on, were innocent in all this, that that was just a a microcosm of all these great people. So David then would have thought, I've got to leave. I got to get out of Dodge. I got to leave Jerusalem right now. Either way, David would now return to fugitive status. Remember, he's been on the run a lot in his life. And now his own son is the antagonist. On his way out of Jerusalem, David will converse with many of his own associates. People will come up to him. This is an emotional time. He gives instructions to people as he goes. Some he encourages to come with him. Some he says to stay behind. Two priests show up. I want you to hear what David says to them, verse 24 through 26. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with him, and the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. A few things to note here. First, David is entrusting himself to God's providential care. He understands that God is sovereign over all. And if that God so desires, God will bring him back to the city. He'll restore his position. But if God has no pleasure in David because of this, then David says, okay, I understand. That's where I am. Whatever happens. Now, friends, this is significant. David is in a tough position. He's in a position that none of us would want to be in. Life is hard and he's struggling. And we can't forget that he brought so much of this mess upon himself because of his own sinful choices. However, what David is doing here is falling on God's mercy, come what may. He's resigned to the fact that God is in control and that God will do what he does. Oh, that we would have such resolve in our own hearts. That we would trust the Lord, come what may. That we would look at the hardships and difficulties in our life and say, God, you're in control. We long for your mercy, we long for your favor, but we're just gonna trust you in light of it all. You have difficulties in your life. You have challenges in your life right now. And you have opportunity to glorify God and to say, God, whatever happens, I'm living for you. And I'm trusting you. Whatever that takes in your life. It's not easy. Nothing about it's easy but it's what we're called to do. And honestly, where else can we turn? 
I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. But second, we see that with David, he's resting in God's sovereignty and providential care doesn't mean that he does nothing. That he sits back and does nothing. He had Abiathar and Zadok go back and serve as his informants. That's what he's going to say to them. He's going to look, I need you back in Jerusalem. I need you to go there. I need you to be my eyes and ears. I need you to help in this situation. And then he got a guy named Hushai, a friend and advisor of David, who says, We're going to go back to the king and declare your loyalty to, uh, to Absalom. However, the purpose of this was so that Absalom, excuse me, that Hushai could defeat the council of Ahithopel, who was uh, a, a valued counselor. And friends, in the same way as we trust God's providential care and sovereignty, we don't just sit back and do nothing. We follow, we obey. We put our seatbelts on because it's safe. We get cancer treatment because that's the next thing to do as we trust the Lord. This principle has lots of applications, but let me just mention one. Some of you have been praying for someone that you know and love for some time that they would come to faith in Christ, and you should pray for them. Let's take it a step further. Go now and speak the gospel to them. Care for them. Love them. Encourage them in Christ. Invite them to church. Trust God's sovereignty and act. Pray speak. You know, earlier I mentioned this theological statement that this woman from Tekoa told David, that God devises the means so that the banished would not remain outsiders forever. And you know what the ultimate application of that is, right? It's the gospel. That through the blood of Jesus, the true king those who are alienated from God can be brought near. We're banished because of our sin. We're separated from God because of our sin and our rebellion against him. But Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin that we might be brought near. We who were once far off because of rebellion against God might be brought near through the blood of Christ. We need to recognize our sinful condition and cry out to God for forgiveness and put our hope and our trust in what Jesus has accomplished. Perhaps today there are some here who need to know the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray. We'll be receiving people at the front. If you need to know how you can know eternal life, we would love to connect with you. If you're ready to be baptized because you're trusting in Christ, we want to connect with you. If you need prayer, we're here to pray with you. If you have questions, we would love to connect with you however we can.
Let's keep our hope fixed on the rock of our salvation. And let's pray. Lord, you are a mighty God, perfect in every way. And we praise you. And we thank you that we are not left to ourselves, but that you have made the way. You have made the way that the banished one may be brought near, may be invited back. And thank you that through the Son, Jesus Christ, the true King, we can have hope and life. God, help us this day. Help us this day to turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, would you stand and sing?